0: But in the last couple of uh, weeks that I'm here, I had a series of sermons that I wanted to present that would actually be preparatory for um, our new pastor. And I'm going to follow through on that. The series that I'm going to call this is Passing the Baton, because that's really what I'm doing. The nature of my work is such that uh, I know I'm here for a while, and then I pass the baton on to another guy. And I thrill at being able to do that. You know, it's important to understand that it gives me great joy to be able to hand over work which has been well done to the next man so that his ministry can flourish. And so that's what's going to be taking place. <clears throat> couple of, uh, uh, I'm, I'm reading from 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'll be reading from verses uh, 12 through 28. <clears throat> Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself shall we? Father, thank you for your word. May we discern from this and glean from this just how we may effectively pass the baton and and see the flourishing of the next man's ministry. Show us our part, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. My wife was getting dressed for a party we were going to, and she held up two necklaces. One of them was um, pearls, and the other one was a really simple string with a set of beads and then hearts interspersed between some of the beads. And she said, which one should I wear? And as I looked at it, I thought, well, for where we're going, you know, fancy dress probably doesn't work so I said I don't think the pearls I think what you need to do is wear something that is is more in keeping not with being fancy but with your earnest heart with your earnest, with your earnest spirit and so uh, she selected the one with the hearts <clears throat> and she wore that I think that this passage is something like that for us um because as we think about moving on to the next guy what i want to talk to you about first is how how do you love your next pastor well how do you love a new guy that you haven't quite gotten to know yet how do you love him well so that so that his ministry can can just be vital and healthy <clears throat> and so I think this passage speaks to it. Um, the Apostle Paul is actually speaking about how he wants the Thessalonians to respond to him and how he he wants them to respond to uh, all the teaching leadership in the church. Okay? And so we just read through that. There's a context here that we really need to keep in view before we look into it, and that's from chapter 1. Paul approaches the Thessalonians, and he says, I thank God for you every time I think about you because of the work that God has done in your lives. He says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, I'm chapter 1, verse 8, but... Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had and how you turned from God, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The whole context of this conversation is he's speaking to a people who have turned from their earlier ways of practice and who have turned to the Lord uh, and to anticipate all the blessings that God's going to bring. And so that's the context of this passage that we're reading. It's a salvation context. It's a context in which the Holy Spirit has done this transforming work and that he's continuing to do a transforming work, but now here's something that they need to participate in, and so all the things that I read—it's really—it's kind of a complex passage in terms of its structure, but it's also—it um, contains some principles that I think are helpful. That I'm going to draw out six different principles by which we—you can, by which you can love your new pastor well. So that's what I'm going to draw out from this passage. Six principles by which you can love your new pastor, the shepherd that God is placing over you, and love him for the benefit and the blessing of his ministry. So I just, instead of working through the literary structure of the passage, I'm just going to pull out related points. The first thing is this, verses 12 and 13 We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. The original language there is acknowledge those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. The idea of acknowledgement, we can easily fall into a situation where we think of acknowledgement the way that a teenager responds to his dad who tells him to clean out the garage. He's playing video games, and dad says, go clean out the garage. And he goes, yeah, uh uh-huh, okay. That's an acknowledgement that just says, yes, you exist and you're there, but it's like it has no real bearing on my life, in and out, right, in one ear and out the other. That's not what the scriptures are talking about. The scriptures are talking about not just recognizing that someone has spoken, but rather the word means to esteem them. That is to recognize the, 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 the office that they carry and to esteem them, not because they themselves have these magnificent qualities, but because the nature of their work needs to be esteemed. Okay? And in properly esteeming them, then you're also properly esteeming what they're teaching and aligning your life with it. You know, but especially to align your life to Christ because of the leadership of that pastor. Paul gives instruction to the Philippians about this. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. There's a one phrase summary of what Paul says there. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's really what it means to esteem your leadership and esteeming, esteeming recognizing, acknowledging a new pastor. Watch him as he's following Christ. He leads through teaching. But it's especially encouraging when we say to a pastor, show me Jesus, and I'll follow you as you follow him. All right, so that's the first thing. The first thing is, let your pastor lead. He leads through teaching. Follow him as he follows Christ. This word, to admonish, means to establish in correct Behavior to instruct in correct behavior. Not that he himself is perfect. Not that he himself has got this nailed down. But here's the thing. If he's studying faithfully the word, and he is seeing what the word says, and he takes and he unfolds that word to you, it's not his opinion. It's God's statement to you. And therefore, he wants you to follow that because it's the way of blessing. Let your pastor lead. He leads through teaching. Now, at this point, I have to tell you, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, right? Because I don't see any kind of deviation from that in this crowd. But it's easy enough to be distracted, distracted and and led aside. The second principle is drawn from verses fourteen through eighteen. <clears throat> we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to g- do good to one another and to everyone. And then turning over to verse twenty six, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. These are related, and and what it speaks to is to maintain congregational harmony, maintain congregational harmony. This verse contains the exhortation, the instruction, that we know that relationships get strained in life. Family relationships get strained, business relationships get strained. It takes place. It's the nature of just simply being different people. We would have to deal with this even if we were not broken in sin. Because we have different perspectives on things. And the more people there are, the more perspectives you have to deal with. So that we wind up having sometimes strained relationships. But what we need to understand is that we can still live and labor in harmony now, here's what I mean. The word harmony is the right way to think about this. If you really listen to a symphony or to a chorus, they're not all strictly singing the same thing. They might be singing different notes. There might even be a little bit of discord in some of those notes. There might be counter melodies in some of the notes that are sung or played, which means a counter-melody is that there's a melody that's going on that is different than the melody that's primary, but they complement one another in some way. Harmony is a really good way to think about congregational life. For example, I, I... I spend a lot of time thinking and talking about theology and worldview issues. Others of you think in terms of what does fellowship look like in the church? Others are thinking in terms of how do we best manage the resources that we've got so that we stay stable as a congregation. All of those things are working in harmony the way that a good chorus works in harmony or a good symphony works in harmony. But it's all moving to the same purpose. It's all moving to the same purpose. We need to be alert to proper spiritual alignment and what each person needs for a faithful walk. And sometimes that need is encouragement. You're doing the right thing. Keep going. I'm behind you. I'm with you. Sometimes that need is for a challenge. It's like, do you, do you realize that what you're doing is amiss? You are sidestepping what God wants. <clears throat> and it's okay to ask somebody, what do you think about this practice or that practice? I mean, I actually did that with my coach this last week. I said, listen, I've been doing this practice, and I'm, I'm not sure that it's okay. What do you think are the ethics of this practice? And he unfolded, me, unfolded for me his opinion. Uh, actually, not his opinion. How he understood it, with the scriptures that he that he would rely upon to evaluate it. And it was helpful to hear that because it was enough of a challenge to make me think, okay, I'm all right. I need to maybe adjust a few things, but it's not radically. It's not a departure from what God wants. You see, as a congregation, we all need to be doing this with one another. It's really easy to think that the new pastor, or any pastor, it's his job to deal with uh, whatever the little difficulties are. No, it's not his job. It's our job. We need to ask ourselves the same question that was asked by Cain of the Lord. Am I my brother's keeper? And God's answer, in essence, was, yes, you are. We are made brothers and sisters of one another in Christ, and therefore we are our brother's keeper. And therefore, congregational harmony is our responsibility. It's not just the pastors. It's not just the elders. So, labor to maintain congregational harmony. That's the whole point of greeting one another with a holy kiss. It's not the idea of the kiss, it's the idea of the reception. The one that says, okay, so we differ on something, but you know what? You're still my brother, you're still my sister. We live together and we'll figure out how these things coordinate. Third thing to draw from this passage in verses 19, 20, 21, and 22. Don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. The third principle is receive, examine, and cling to the word as your pastor teaches you. Receive, examine, and cling to the word as your pastor teaches you. Not a single one of us has a clear, organized, native understanding of God and his ways. There's so much about the way we approach God which is deformed. It's deformed because we modify things by our own thinking. We allow the culture to shape us. We don't really have a healthy, natural understanding of God. And therefore, we must be taught And the question is, what are we being taught? The culture around us tells us that, you know, God is just one God among many. He's, you know, an option. Well, you're not going to want to say that to him on the last day when you're standing in front of him. Well, God, you're just an option. I have other options. Maybe not, right? The question is, First of all, we must be taught, but the question is, what are we being taught, and how does it match up with what God has revealed about himself? What we are taught impacts the entirety of our lives. It impacts our thoughts, our affections, our imagination, our motivations, and our inner harmony. Okay, if we are taught badly, then we will struggle with spiritual orderliness. I have to tell you, Presbyterian ministers undergo an extensive training process before they are ever, ever approved to be ordained and ever, ever approved to be made a pastor of a church. Just consider this for a second. He must know his Bible. He is educated in Bible knowledge, original languages, Hebrew and Greek, sometimes Latin. He's he's educated in the rules of interpretation, He's educated in systematic theology, history of redemption, covenantal theology, historical theology, practical theology, biblical ethics, pastoral counseling, church history, biblical communication, and church form and structure. And that's before he goes to meet with Presbytery. He must be trained in those things. And the man who goes into ministry and doesn't have a knowledge of that endangers his congregation you heard me say it a man who does not have that kind of knowledge when he goes into ministry endangers his congregation church history is 2,000 years old if we don't understand church history how do we know whether or not we're leading you down a path that's already been rejected in history because it's, it leads to hell So then, in front of the Presbytery, before the Presbytery agrees to ordain a man to ministry, he must pass written exams in Bible knowledge, Bible interpretation, Bible communication, theology, history, understanding of sacraments, knowledge of church history, and church polity that is the book of church order. He must preach a sermon to the Presbytery. After that, he must be verbally examined by a committee of Presbytery and scrutinized for what he believes about certain things. For example, if we truly believe in baptism by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and somebody is baptized as a Catholic and they come into the Presbyterian church, should they be rebaptized? baptized Presbytery has to examine that. If man doesn't believe in six literal days of creation, what does he believe in? And is that acceptable according to scripture? All of these things and many, many more, he has to examine and explain his answer in front of a presbytery. <clears throat> and then when he is ordained, he must take vows of faithfulness before God. and included in one of those vows of faithfulness is no matter what the circumstances will you be faithful to teach the word to this congregation even if it means laying down your life how many of us have had to take a vow like that just to become a church member it's serious stuff A man doesn't become a Presbyterian minister just because he thinks it's a good idea. His soul is examined every step along the way. And the reason he goes through all of this is because your soul is at stake. Most people go to church to feel good. The reason we come to church is to worship our redeeming God and to learn his ways. Having gotten reports on the new pastor who's coming in, You are getting a faithful, well educated, knowledgeable, well trained, um, approved man. You are. I've seen his exam scores from his written exams. I've had conversations with him about his theology. I have such confidence and love for this guy. He's going to be a blessing. That's why Paul says in verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to the other brothers. Is that serious. Under oath. What does it mean to be put under oath before God to have a letter read? It means we do it because it's healthy for the church. Number four. We look to God's power for, you look to God's power for yourself and for your pastor. Verse 23 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So the fourth principle is that you, you can't obey God's word without God's power. Your minister can't obey God's word without God's power. It's not merely a matter of intellect and training. It's a matter that the real power of the Holy Spirit needs to be working in him as well as in you. The real power for the Christian life is not found in your pastor or in your leaders. They're but human beings with the same infirmities that you struggle with. Anger. Frustration a desire to shift blame, to be okay. It's God himself who must make you holy and sanctify you. It's God himself who must preserve you and keep you. And your pastor as well. So it's not that you say, boy, I sure hope that the pastor brings me a word of encouragement so I can feel better. But, oh God, God, Give our pastor unction so that I hear your voice as he teaches. That's your prayer. Because without God's unction, you only get a bunch of noise that lasts for a half an hour, 40 minutes, an hour, however long he goes on. So pray for your pastor, pray for unction. The Holy Spirit would empower him to speak to your heart. Fifth principle, verse 28 The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We live by grace, and so does your pastor. We need to allow one another to live by grace. We live under God's grace, but we only, we only really live under God's grace. Whatever we have in terms of our relationship with God and a wholesome relationship with one another is the grace of God working in you and working through you and among you. <clears throat> and therefore, as you live by Christ's grace and allow your pastor to live in Christ's grace, you cultivate a wholesome, healthy ministerial relationship in the whole church. And so live in Christ's grace and allow your pastor to do so as well. Grace, of course, is a recognition that God's favor is undeserved. You think your pastor deserves to be a minister? Left to myself, I have no business being here. It's not a matter of me belonging. It's a matter of following a call. And I can assure you, the new man who's coming in is following a call. When you look at the history of his life and you look at the way in which God got a hold of him, he is a trophy of grace, which is exactly the kind of minister you want. Anything less than that, and you will not be well-blessed or well-served. He is a trophy of grace. He is a brother, and I love him. The last thing is this. The Apostle Paul says in verse 25, Brothers, pray for us. Brothers, pray for us. Remember that your pastor's work is spiritual. I think Paul is saying to his Gentile converts, the apostle to the Gentile is saying to the Gentile converts, is that the great temptation is for us to present ourselves to you as though we have it all together. It's the one thing that probably annoys Christians and non-Christians alike. Pastor whose hair is always in place, who's always dressed impeccably, who's always got it together and always has the right answer. It's kind of annoying, actually. (laughs) You know, your pastor's work is spiritual. The last thing you really need him to say is, hey, be like me, I've made it. We all know it's not true. And so this verse here provides the bookend to Pastor, lead me to Christ and I'll follow you. That's one end, that's one bookend. The other bookend is this. Pray for us. We need your prayers. We need to know that. God is working in us. I need spiritual strength and spiritual protection. I need God's presence and blessing. That's really what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's not saying, hey, I'm an apostle. I've made it. I'm really, I've got these things going. The Apostle is saying, brethren, pray for us. The Apostle. How much more your pastor? You need to pray for your pastor every day, every week. The Apostle Paul knows that if there's anything to be done in the lives of the elect, it must be God who does it. This is why he appeals for prayer. Nothing is accomplished in the church without prayer. It's one of the reasons why we've reinstituted a Wednesday evening prayer service. Nothing is accomplished in the church without prayer. It's not as though we bring spiritual fruitfulness just by putting forth a little effort in the books. Because your pastor cannot do it without God's power, without God's spirit. Your pastor cannot, can frequently cannot see the fruit of his labors. He has to labor by faith. He will many times never see the fruit of his work. He cannot see his enemy who prowls about like a roaring lion looking for an opportunity to devour him. He needs God's spirit. And therefore... You have to remember your pastor's work is spiritual, and you need to pray. Pray for him. Those six principles, and probably we could stack in many more there, but those six are drawn from this passage, keeping in mind that if we have turned from idols to serve the living and the true God, then these are truly effective for the health and life of our church. Therefore, I would say commit them to heart, commit them to uh, the Lord, and do your best to implement them. Remember, God is a God of faithfulness. He loves his church more than you and me. And therefore, to appeal to him is to have him fulfill these through you and in you and among you. That's the joy that we have He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray together, shall we?